Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Hi, bed crimers. Hope life is treating you well. To anyone new, a warm welcome. Guys, let me just ask that if after watching the video you found you enjoyed it, please smash that like button. Before I launch into the main topic of this video, let me share the latest details of the case with you. According to an article on foxnews.com, a neighbor of the four slain University of Idaho students is claiming they saw the front door to the girl's house wide open hours after the slains. The neighbor told Fox News that the front door, which opens to the lowest level of the house where the two surviving roommates were sleeping, was wide open about 8 a.m. on Sunday, November 13th. The 911 call about a possible unconscious person was made from one of the unharmed roommate's phones around noon. Hearing about the front door being open at 8 a.m. would seem to indicate that the perpetrator exited by that door. The police are not saying how they believe the suspect entered and exited the home, the only person who's talked about that was victim Kaylee Gonsalves' father. He made it sound like the cops had told him that the suspect entered the home through the rear sliding doors off the kitchen. So perhaps the suspect went in through those rear sliding doors, but left through the front door. And this is all made the more compelling now that we've learned that a white Hyundai Elantra was seen in the immediate area of the girl's home around the time the crime is believed to have gone down, between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. Fox News Digital reported yesterday, Thursday, December 9th, that Canadian border authorities told them that they are also on the lookout for the white Hyundai at the country's ports of entry. All of this information leads me to assume that maybe the occupant of the white Elantra is either the perpetrator or the getaway driver, but probably the perpetrator. The police aren't saying that, by the way. This is just me taking what they have said and using it to speculate. The other very significant new information is that another of the girl's neighbors has come forward to report to the Idaho Statesman newspaper that he heard a scream on the night of the crime. 30-year-old Inan Harsh lives in the brick apartment building next to the girl's off-campus house. It's the same place where Jeremy Reagan and Jack S. live. Inan Harsh said he returned from his job as a cook at around 1.30 a.m. on Sunday, November 13th, and later heard someone yell. Harsh said that as he dozed off at around 4 a.m., he assumed it was a party sound coming from the six-bedroom house at 1122 King Road. Harsh stated, and I quote, I didn't think anything of it. After what happened, I've definitely had second thoughts. Maybe it was not a party sound, end quote. Harsh told the Idaho statesman that he didn't mention the disturbing detail to the cops during an initial conversation, 
but later contacted investigators after it occurred to him that someone might have been screaming in distress. He added, and I quote, I'm not sure what good it does for them now, end quote. Okay, I think it's a tad weird that this guy didn't mention the yell or the scream until later. That seems like a little red flag, but maybe, honestly, he did not put two and two together until later when he was processing everything mentally. But it's still strange. I'm also wondering how if this guy heard such a yell in the apartment building next door, how is it possible that both unharmed roommates in the same house as the victims did not hear the yell? What does this say about the crime? Are the acoustics such that the neighbor had a better shot at hearing a yell than the two roommates on the ground floor? I'm confused. This same neighbor also said that he spotted an unfamiliar black luxury SUV parked a few spaces from the front of the home when he returned that morning, which he reported to police. Now that's ultra weird. So now we have this black SUV near the girl's home and the white Hyundai Elantra too. I would think these vehicles were on the road, King Road, not on the driveway, because that driveway goes up, and even the police chief could not manage to drive the U-Haul truck in which the students' personal belongings were placed up that driveway due to snow and ice. It was 27 to 28 degrees Fahrenheit on the night of the crime. Maybe that's why the white Elantra and this black luxury SUV were said to be a few spaces from the front of the home and not in the driveway area. Wait a minute, let me correct that. The black luxury SUV was said to be a few spaces from the front of the home and not in the driveway. The Elantra was said to be in the immediate vicinity of the home. Note that Inan Harsh's timeline of the scream matches that of when the police believe an intruder entered the three-story home and took the lives of Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Zana Granado, and Ethan Chapin. So that's the latest news, and it has my mind spinning once again. Now on to the main topic. At almost four weeks out from the day the crime occurred, Sunday, November 13, 2022, the case of the four slain University of Idaho students remains unsolved. Because of the brutal nature of this crime, the type of weapon that was used, the messiness, if you will, of the crime scene, the fact that four vibrant young people died at the hands of a monster in the sanctity of their bedrooms and beds means that their families, the other students who attend the university and their parents, the two unharmed roommates and the residents of Moscow are beyond eager to have their night terrors end. For them to have any peace, they need the perpetrator caught like yesterday. The problem is this case is complicated. You have four victims, 
and a lot of blood. You have a perpetrator who managed to elude, at least so far, being caught on surveillance video. You have DNA evidence that's extremely complicated because all that red stuff is commingled and the crime scene was known to be a party house with very social young women living there, young women who often entertained. You have evidence as well in the form of tiny fibers from clothing, fingerprints on the sliding glass door, maybe on doorknobs into the bedrooms, perhaps on the wall going up the stairs. That place, when the investigators found it, was teeming with all sorts of DNA. The investigators are at the mercy of the labs testing the evidence and running the toxicology reports. At the same time, they're having to go through digital evidence in the way of phone calls, cell tower pings, text messages, Instagram posts, and other social media of the four victims and the people who are closest to them and some of the friends they might have been interacting with that weekend. And as the investigators do all of that, the slain students' families, the residents of Moscow, the University of Idaho and its staff, students and students' parents, as well as the governor of Idaho, all of us and God knows who else, are putting an immense amount of pressure on the face of the investigation. The small town Moscow Police Department, a police department whose last case of a similar nature was back in 2015. Note that the university is the number one employer in Moscow. Many Moscovites, I really wanted to use that word, I don't know if it's accurate for these people, rely on that university for their income. In fact, pretty much the whole town depends on the university to survive. Not only do they want the perpetrator caught, because he's scary and could do this again, they need the perpetrator caught so that students show up next semester and next year and the year after that. These poor investigators are, we've been told, working 24-7. Imagine the stress on them. So far, they've received more than 6,000 tips. They have to sift through all of that to find the gems. They do not need to be publicly criticized while they're going through this and working so hard. Yes, there should not have been mixed messaging between the police and the prosecutor's office. Yes, it sounds like they should have processed the victim's vehicles sooner rather than later. I mean, I get Kaylee's father's upset at these slip-ups. He has every right to want his child's death to be fully and properly investigated. I'm not criticizing him at all. He needs to do what he needs to do. But does that mean that I think the police should tell Mr. Gonsalves or us about all the evidence they have? No, absolutely not. The investigators have a higher purpose, and that is making sure this person is caught and then making sure all the evidence is wrapped up with a bow so that the perpetrator can be successfully tried in a court of law. Let's talk about the white Hyundai Elantra. 
I know we now also have the black SUV, but let's focus on the Elantra for now. But as I say that, I'm now thinking that perhaps more than one person may be involved in this crime. Could both vehicles have carted more than one perpetrator to the girl's house and then away from it? It's a possibility, but for now let's tackle the white Elantra. The police say they are searching for at least one person they believe was inside a white Elantra sedan that was observed near the crime scene around the time of the attack on Sunday, November 13th. The police said that a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra was spotted in the immediate area of the girl's off-campus house. Note that this information about the vehicle came from the thousands of tips the police have received. The police's latest update said, and I quote, Investigators believe the occupant or occupants of this vehicle may have critical information to share regarding the case, end quote. The more I think about this crime and learning of this white Elantra being spotted in the immediate vicinity of the girl's home, I realize that we've only been focusing on the guys we know about. The guy in the hoodie, seen in the grub truck video. He's Jack S., Kaylee's ex-boyfriend, Jack D., Victim Ethan Chapin's mysterious friend, Jack K. Jack K's the guy Ethan sent Venmo monies to on Saturday night. And Jack K is also the guy who made the first donation of $6 to a GoFundMe set up in Ethan's name. Jack K is also the guy with the sister, Liz K, who received a Venmo Saturday that was described with the words, 3.30 a.m. Definitely strange details that make Jack K look a tad suspicious, although the police have never said a word about Jack K. Let's speculate a little. The cops haven't said if they think the occupant of this white Elantra is the perpetrator, or if they think the occupant is just perhaps a witness to the crime in some way. Let's say that the occupant is the perpetrator just for this conversation. This would indicate that the suspect did not walk to the girl's home on King Road, but rather drove there in this white Elantra. That means the perpetrator would not likely live in the vicinity of the girl's house. So that might rule out Jack S., who lives in a large brick apartment building right next door to the girls, and also rule out Kaylee's ex, Jack D., who also lives within minutes of their home. Jack S. and Jack D. would likely not have bothered to drive over to the house at 1122 King Road if they were the perpetrator. It would be stupid for them to take the risk of driving that short distance. So what about all the guys in the Corner Club bar, where Kaylee and her best friend, Maddie Mogan, were socializing from 11 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. Saturday night and into Sunday morning, according to that Joe Vito guy who was at the Corner Club bar that night 
and also at the grub truck when Kaylee and Maddie were there, has said that the two young women were getting a lot of attention from guys at the bar. What does that mean? Were these guys simply flirting with these two pretty blondes, or were they plying Kaylee and Maddie with shots and other drinks? If so, did one of those guys feel that he had something coming to him for buying those drinks? Or did one of the guys in the bar crave attention from the two blonde bombshells, but be given the cold shoulder instead? Or what if someone dropped something into one of the girls' drinks, knowing they would be out of it later on and unable to react quickly during an attack and mostly unable to defend themselves? If Maddie and Kaylee were inebriated, which for sure Maddie appeared to be in that grub truck video, Kaylee perhaps less so, their ability to react and to fight back would have been diminished. That works to the perpetrator's advantage. The coroner said she did not feel drugs were involved, but we haven't heard anything about the toxicology reports. Being roofied is a possibility, I would think. But even without that, the girls were still under the influence of something, from what Joe Vito said, and from what we can see of Maddie in the video, Kaylee a little less so. Isn't it possible that one of these other guys at the Corner Club bar, guys we haven't seen in any video footage or heard about, could be the perpetrator? I just feel like it's not a coincidence that Kaylee and Maddie, within an hour of getting home from that bar, were confronted by a madman holding a sharp-edged object. They got home at 1.56 a.m., and just a short time later, around 3 a.m. to 4 a.m., they and their two friends were confronted by what appears to have been an enraged, uninvited guest with a sharp object in hand. Note that this person did not essay the victims during the crime. That doesn't mean the crime did not have a blank component. I can't say that word, but I think you know what I mean. A sharp-edged object in the mind of a troubled offender can sometimes be a substitute for male genitalia. Just saying. Why do I cringe when I say that G word? The off-campus house is on a cul-de-sac. One way in, one way out. Whoever drove that white Elantra and the black SUV now in the immediate area of the girl's residence was there for a reason and took the chance of having that vehicle or those vehicles spotted either by someone living there or by a ring camera, although there don't seem to be many security cameras in that neighborhood. Why would that car be near the girl's home at around 3 a.m. to 4 a.m.? I've also heard people say that this neighborhood was traveled mostly on foot. Did someone from the bar drive over to the girl's well-known party house? This is a small town. Everybody probably knew about that house. Knowing they were inebriated, 
knowing they were headed home after being at the bar, and knowing few people would be out and about in that neighborhood between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. I know the police haven't specified if they believe that the occupant of the Elantra is the perpetrator, or if they think it might just be a witness, or if they think maybe he's the getaway driver. Any of these are possible. The white Elantra has suddenly opened up a wider pool of potential perpetrators in my mind. What about you guys? Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. If you enjoyed this, if you got something out of it, please smash that like button. Please subscribe to my channel. Please consider a membership.